This episode is brought to you by Big Little Lies on HBO. Based on Leanne Moriarty's best-selling book, this darkly comedic series tells the tale of five mothers whose seemingly perfect lives unravel to the point of murder. Critics claim the second season is as good as TV gets. Big Little Lies is Emmy-eligible for Outstanding Drama Series and all other categories. How has HBO's Westworld gone from being inspired by a 1973 Michael Crichton movie to being this great TV series of female empowerment? Executive producer and writer Denise Tay is here to tell us on Crew Call. Tell us about getting started as a TV writer. Um, how you started... Sure. Uh, getting like a sample portfolio ready, or were you already a writer's assistant and, and meeting Jonah? Um, that's a, a question that goes back very, very many years. And um, I started out, I had a different career. I was working at American Express in the World Financial Center in marketing, and I was pretty miserable. I was, I was really pretty unhappy. And I remember thinking back to my childhood and my father um, is from, is Chinese, but from Indonesia. And when he first came to the country, what he loved to do was go to movies. And this is also how he kind of integrated himself into society. It's how he, you know, really brushed up on his English. And so when we were kids, that's what we would do. He would take us to movies and we would see like three and four. We would see all these movies all the time. And so when I was sitting there kind of miserable um, in New York thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Do I really want to do marketing with my life? I thought back about that time when I was growing up. And what I really wanted to do was be a part of movies or TV or storytelling. It just seemed so outrageous at the time. It just seemed like that. How do you ever attain that? You know? Um, but I was young, I had no kids, no mortgage. And so I quit my job and I came out here. Um, and I started doing night classes at UCLA for screenwriting. I started, you know, really just watching, um, TV, reading any kind of pilot scripts I could reading any kind of movie scripts I could. And then I started submitting and I, and I ultimately submitted to, um, the, um, CBS diversity program. And I got into that program, and it was huge for me. I got agents. I had mentors that were helping me. Um, and from there, I, I wrote um, back then. This was, so, this was so long ago. Um, people didn't really write original pilots. They wrote, they wrote shows, you know. So I wrote A Grey's Anatomy, and I wrote A Lost. And ultimately, those things got me hired on Sir Connor Chronicles. And from there, I, I moved on to different shows. One of the shows I worked on was a show called Cold Case. And um, Greg Plegeman was running Cold Case at the time. And Greg Plegeman then went on, once Cold Case um, was over after seven seasons, to partner with Jonah Nolan. And Jonah and Greg partnered together and co-show ran Jonah's first show, Person of Interest. And so Greg called me up and said, do you want to meet Jonah? And I was already a fan. And I said, absolutely, you know, 100%. And I started working with them 
from the first season of Person, Inter uh, Person of Interest. I was a co-producer then and did all five seasons and worked my way up to kind of becoming a kosher runner with Jonah and Greg by the end of that. And all told, we made over a hundred of episodes of television. So we have a, you know, we have a history there. Um, so when he and Lisa called me up for Westworld, it was very exciting. This is, you know, obviously it's a, it's a huge show. The caliber of actors, amazing. The crew too, they all elevate the material. It's like all these things and, and the fan base is, is so intense. Um, and so wonderful. And so the bar is, is so very high on a show like this. So it helps knowing, hey, look, we've made a lot of television together. We have a shorthand together. We have a trust, which is really so important. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a great ride, crazy ride. The, um, what, what were some of the films you watched as a kid that, that inspired you with oh your dad? God. We, um, we watched so many of all the, all the class, like classics, you know, E.T. and um, things that I'm trying to introduce my kids to now, that I'm trying to decide if they're able to watch it, if it's too scary or not, you know, Indiana Jones. Um, as watching TV, the A-Team, I adored the A-Team. That's something that Jonah and I bonded over, <laughs> I think, in our Very first. Very much. Yes. <laughs> you always have to have a plan, right? Yes, yes. Oh, Gosh, yeah. Um, a total aside. I'm so surprised they were never able to launch that as a movie or even reboot it. As who knows, maybe one day it'll be rebooted as a TV series because it's such a fantastic it. hourly show. It's like an action film a week. It was. It was an action film a week. It had everything you wanted. The characters were larger than life. I mean, I, they have to. They have to. Right? There was a. I'm so sorry. There was a scene, I don't know if you remember this, when they dropped face off of a hotel into yes. a swimming pool. It was like mind-blowing. It was That's like such so a big... Amazing. I'm going to look this up after this interview. Done for television. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It was ahead of its time. <laughs> the, um, so, so coming into Westworld, mm -hmm. was there a similarity to the way that Jonah ran the writer's room. I, mm. And I'm asking it from the perspective of, this is a show with such a huge mythology. Yeah. Or it, and it was very big world building mm. and also homage to the Crichton film. And I was just curious if he approached things the same way as person of interest, or if this is completely different. What you said earlier about how the show is so serialized. And I think that in and of itself makes it a different nut to crack. It's a different beast. You know, it's, it's all of these really rich, interesting characters, but the ensemble is so, so large. And you really want to do them all justice and you really want to give them all story and how to craft that story in such a way in which their stories constantly reflect on another, talk to each other, are thematically resonant with each other. That's a different type of breaking in a room and a much more complex type of breaking, not to mention all of the kind of mysteries and the twists and turns and things that have been set up from, you know, the, the original pilot that you, you keep on building on. So I did find the room work to be much more in depth and much more complex. Um, and, 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 and that was kind of true across the board. It wasn't just going into the room. It was also on the page when you were in script, it was also when you were on set, 
and you were working through the scenes there and in editing too. You know, the whole, the entire process was more involved and more complex. Um, and I think also in some ways that much more rewarding because there, you know, you were, you were trying to um, work on all these different facets and have them all come together. And so if it did, it was like lightning, you know, if it didn't, you're like, how, why, why <laughs> keep working, keep working, you know? Let, let's let's start with season three. Okay. I, I I wish you could see me writing all my questions. They're all over the place. I'm like I rewatched the absence of field and the season finale, and just when I thought I knew everything about season three, you know, at the end, right. I still have questions. About sure. it, yeah, which is wonderful. It's it's that it's that electric of a show, and that's why I love it. But you walk into the writers' room for season three. How does it begin? Do you guys start discussing themes and then spiral off into beats and story beats? Or is it more about, okay, well, we left off Mm -hmm. and and, uh, Dolores has smuggled herself inside Charlotte into the real world. Now what do we do? Right. Yeah. From the practical or Mm -hmm. from the big think thematic? Um, I would say... Generally speaking, because it, you know, it can fluctuate and change. It is kind of like the the room is that kind of thing where it's like that living, breathing thing where you're on one thing and all of a sudden you go to another thing. You know, you're just, it's like you're, you're feeding off each other's energies and each other's ideas. So it can very easily, um, like water, you know, change its, its course. But, um, I would say generally speaking, yes, when, when we're first beginning, it's the broad picture, it's the big picture. And this season, um, very much starting from the place of this futuristic world. And I think, you know, I, I, I think I should kind of go back and say, Jonah and Lisa have always had in their head kind of an architecture for the show, for seasons, you know? And even as far back as when they pitched the idea to HBO, um, you know, they knew that the host would eventually break out of the park and that they eventually would go to this new futuristic world. So this was something that they were building to in season one and building to in season two. And so coming into the season, they had had, you know, kind of years of thinking about this. And then even, you know, even in addition to that, had had many sessions with the two of them talking about, well, what do we really want to do this year with the character journeys? What are the big twists and turns? So you're starting from a very solid foundation, you know, and I think for, for me personally, that the two biggest um, kind of pillars of this foundation were the world itself. What does our world look like in 30 to 40 years? And they had a very strong vision about that. And I think when you watch the first episode of this season that Jonah directed, you, you very much see visually what that world is about. You know, you see that it's beautiful. You see this this tech that's so sleek and gorgeous. Um, You see these pedestrian walkways, it's very green. They didn't want it to appear dystopian at all. But underneath that, something else is going on, right? And that's the kind of thing where it's it's like a really beautiful metaphor. And we kind of had a joke, it's not really a joke, but of there's, there's no trash cans in the future, right? So whenever we would go to a location, Jonah would say, you don't see the trash cans, right? So it was always this kind of thing of like trying to remove the trash cans. And sometimes you'd be at a park and they would be like literally like in the ground and they'd have to like get them out, you know. 
But of course there's trash in the future. It's just hidden. It's just in places that you don't see it, right? And of course there are roads and people are traveling, delivered delivery guys and transportation stuff you just don't see it it's in the bowels and so this whole idea of the trash is underneath the decay is underneath the corruption is underneath and so that was one of the biggest pillars i think that we started from both from visually but also kind of from a metaphor a metaphor level you know um and throughout the season we would talk about that more we would talk about futurism we would talk about what does that look like for class structure or criminology or um technology and the writers built like a binder that was part physical where you would have like literally put physical articles or whatever in and then also online that we could share stuff and share pitches and stuff like that. So that was part of the, the biggest kind of um, starting point. And then for me, the other really, you know, the, the second pillar in this was the thematic idea that when you get out into this real world and when you finally start experiencing it, it is not, what you think it's going to be, you know, in Dolores's case, I think maybe she imagined that she would leave the park and that she would find a group of hosts that were all kind of subservient to people that were all kind of serving people. And that as she had freed the hosts in the park, she might now free these hosts in the real world. And that's not what she found. Instead, she found a class of people like Caleb who were living their lives and not truly understanding as the host in, in the first season that their lives were being controlled that decisions and choices were being made for them um, without them even having the knowledge of it. And so that kind of thematic idea was, um, you know, in essence built her plan for the season. It was the start of her plan. It was the start of Caleb's character. It was the start of um, Ciroc, you know, this having this antagonist who is the creator of this system and who is ultimately going to um, oppose Dolores and try to recruit Maeve on his side in order to, you know, um, get the information that he needs to continue um, controlling humanity. So to me, those were the two biggest points. And I think in, in your question, those are broad places. And then once, you know, we had those in place and once we knew, because Joan and Lisa really did kind of know the journeys that they wanted to have and, and, and the twists and turns, once we could lay those out in a structural way and get the bones of the season, then we could go back in and start individually breaking the episodes. And then do you work on one episode at a time or are there three different episodes? I mean, given how intricate the building blocks and the details are, my assumption would be, but I, I mean, I was never that good with calculus. Um, my assumption would be that you would work on one episode at a time, but in, in sometimes in writer's room, you're, you're, you're breaking three episodes at a time. Yeah. Sometimes you are. Sometimes you're jumping back and forth. You know, I think when you have the major tent poles and you kind of know this is what's going to happen here. Episode four is where we do, where we reveal who are in all, all those pearls, right? Once you kind of know that those major structural elements it allows you to kind of stop and break, but you are, as you start breaking the episode, learning new things. And so that does kind of force you to go out and change some of those other things that are in those other episodes or shift those things that are in those other episodes. And then there are some episodes that just want to be broken together. Like they just kind of fit together. And so you do sometimes end up breaking those episodes alongside each other. In episodes seven and eight this year, 
was a lot like that. Those were, you know, those were kind of, we were breaking, you know, you would, you would get to some point in seven and say, well, we really have to land on this in eight. So let's land on it in eight and then we'll go back to seven. And then it was kind of like this crisscrossing that we went back and forth. That one more so than I think any of the other episodes really was kind of broken in tandem. And then do you talk and discuss and then separate, maybe go back home, write for a day or two and then come back together and meet up? Is that, is that usually yeah, how things work? Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, it works different ways at different phases. You know, in the beginning when we're brainstorming and blue skying, there was a lot of time where Lisa and Jonah would have um, like, you know, individual study where you would do just that. You know, you would, you would be in the room, you would be pitching, and then they would say, well, think about this and research this. And then you would go home and think about it and, you know, trade pitches off with people um, and then bring it back to the room. There's, there's the phase, you know, once you break the episode, there's the outline phase. So then you're, you're breaking off and writing the outline. And then once that it goes through kind of all the noting process, then you're breaking off and writing the script. But so often with this show, because of, because of the things that we spoke about earlier, because of the serialization elements, um, because these episodes need to talk to each other so closely and, and everything kind of builds on each other, very often you would be writing a script and you would realize we've had this just amazing idea in the next episode, but it affects your script because you need to set it up. And so you're coming back to the room and, and you're kind of doing this dance with the episodes where, okay, now we need to write that into your episode to make it land in this episode, you know? So there is a lot of, of, of communication and a lot of back and forth. And it kind of, I have found in the show continues on when you get to the editing process as well, because that's a whole nother process of kind of going through and seeing how you want to make these things talk to each other and how you want um, ultimately the viewer to experience it. Before we talk more about absence of field, um, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, there's a lot of analysis that, that goes on in Reddit in these oh. chat rooms, which I know th this goes back to, to like Deadwood and, I'd probably even Sopranos, but Westworld in particular. Mm -hmm. And do you have like an intern or someone dedicated on staff that goes through this and you guys, do you guys sometimes draw inspiration from that? You're like, hmm, that's an interesting idea. Or is that kind of like you let that, you let that, that's something else that's going on and you guys just do your thing. Um, I can't really speak for everyone here. You know, uh, I know that there are people on staff, not just writers, but just, you know, across the board that reread it. Um, and a lot of times if there's a really out there, um, very fun or wacky kind of theory, then you hear about it in the office. Like, hey, did you hear this is what they're talking about right now? You know, um, I think that for me personally, while that stuff is very interesting, um, I don't want to necessarily be personally um, changed by it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want yeah. to have one idea and then read and then think, oh, oh, well, that idea can't ever work. Or, or, or worse, uh, now I have this idea, now I've read it, and now I feel like I'm copying it. You know what I mean? Like, there's, so I tend to, um, I tend to have either, you know, if, whether it's people on staff that I'm close with or people in my life that I'm close with 
that will read Reddit or even read other reviews and, and things like that and generally talk to me about them because I do like that is important to us and we do generally talk about how seasons have been received, how episodes have been received as a starting point for conversation for what do we do well? What do we want to do better? You know, so like that is very important to us. But I think for me personally, I don't want to be so influenced that it changes. Right. Yeah. 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 David, do you watch HBO's Big Little Lies? It stars Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, Laura Dern, Shailene Woodley, and Zoe Kravitz. About It's about this group of female friends up in Monterey, California. You would think life isn't complicated for them. They, they're kind of well-to-do, but tragic things happen. And season two picks up right after things went south in season one. Complicating things this season is Celeste's mother-in-law, played by Meryl Streep. She wants the kids. So season one won eight Emmys, including Outstanding Limited Series, and season two is Emmy-eligible again. So this beautiful episode where we learn more about Charlotte Hale. I mean, this is just, I mean, what a love letter to Tessa Thompson's character, uh, her complexity and just just this tragic strain of of her thank you i mean you take it to a whole other level with her piercing herself which is which yeah. is tragic and um and um how let's start with this is what was interesting i had asked her I said, when did Dolores die? Uh, this is Tessa. When I talked to Tessa okay. a while back, I said, when did Dolores, uh, excuse me, when did Charlotte die? Mm-hmm. Um, I said, was it when, um, was it at the end of the season one um, massacre? Mm-hmm. Or was it really in season two when we saw, saw her robot self turning on herself? And she said it was in season two. Mm-hmm. Um I'm just making sure that's still correct. That's, that's my first question. I know, the timeline can shift. I get, yeah. Um, but, I mean, taking it, let, let's, I, I think my main question here is just devoting an episode to her and expanding her story. Yeah. It, tell, tell us more about that inspiration. It, sure. For me, a no-brainer. She's such a fascinating character. But it's coming later than sooner mm-hmm. in the whole timeline of Westworld. Right, right. Yeah, and that was something that um, Jonah and Lisa had talked about prior. They knew that they wanted to do her story this season. They knew they wanted to reveal more about, um, you know, the Charlotte Hale that we had gotten to know, that she had had these hidden layers, that these, you know, other um, aspects to her life that we had never seen before. And I find it really, really interesting that it's done in such a way that the real Charlotte Hale is now gone. I mean, you are learning about her life, but you're learning it through this, this, you know, host that is masquerading as her. So it puts this extra kind of level and and layer on it. And, um, for me, it was a really, it was a really, um, it was a gift to be given this episode to write, to be assigned this episode to write, because I felt a really strong um, kind of personal connection to it. And I think it's in part a couple of different things, but part of it is, you know, this idea of, 
a, a, a woman living in our, our society today and having all these different responsibilities. And, you know, we knew this was going to be an episode about Hale struggling with her identity, you know? Um, and in fact, she is so loyal to um, Dolores. And yet at the same time, she's trying to manage this hostile takeover at Delos. This is extremely, I would imagine, extremely stressful. Um, and she's meeting this new family and getting to care for this new family at the same time. And she's torn and pulled in all these different directions. And I just felt like that is kind of the epitome of how you feel nowadays, where you have all these different loyalties, you have all these different priorities. You can't possibly do them all and be successful at all of them, you know? Um, and, and you're always kind of hiding in that, in that she is a mole. Um, she finds out by the end that she's a mole, and, but she's a mole throughout the episode because she's being all these different people. And that's kind of how I feel in my life, where I'm always putting on these different hats and also always kind of hiding, um, even from myself. So I think there is a there was a real strong connection that I had with it. And I was so happy um, to get this episode. So and brilliant. Thank you. And, and really. also just, you know, Tessa Thompson, just so amazing, just so amazing in it. And the other thing that was really a rewarding experience is that, so um, in addition, you know, for me writing it, there was um, the director, Amanda Marcellus directed it quite beautifully, right? Zoe White, the DP um, was our DP. Our editor, Ali, um, I don't want to mess up her last name, Kumpar, Kumparcio. Um, and so you have all these really amazing women, these really professional women that are getting together and collaborating. And at all levels, it's changing this um, story and it's becoming better and it's becoming more nuanced. And so it was just, it was a really kind of rewarding experience, even outside of the actual writing of it, um, to get to go through. So very cool. Then I had some fanboy questions about it. Um, fan, fan, fanboy, fangirl questions. Mm -hmm. The, um, the, uh, with, with Caleb and with Charlotte's son, with Charlotte's son and Caleb's mom, yeah. it's like they can, they know who's real. It, it's like they know when they're talking to a host. Mm -hmm. Or at that point in time, we don't know if Caleb's human or host. Right. At that point, there's there's right. a continual debate. Can yeah. you expound? This is going to lead me to something else with Caleb's mother, but can you expound on that? I found that so fascinating. Like when Charlotte's son says, "But you're not you're not my mom." Yeah. Um, I think that you know, just on a surface level, it is it is it is that it is what you're saying. You know, it is. It is someone, a child who knows his mother so well that he can feel, whether he can truly articulate it or not, he can feel that this being next to him is not his mother. He's not receiving the same thing that he received from his mother. Um, I think kind of the irony in the episode is that she moves closer to actually being his mother and that, you know, caring for him and then seeing him in danger in that scene with the, with the predator when she kills a predator, it is kind of that love and that violence that it kind of causes her to have a different, you know, kind of like a rebirth of a, of a, a whole new kind of being. She's part uh, Hale. She's part Dolores. She's this whole new thing there. And it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, happens to her through this experience with her child. And so I think it's, it makes sense that, that it's, 
it's the people closest to you that know you the most that can that can tell you when you're being fake, that can feel it in their gut when you're being fake, you know? Um, so on the very surface level, I think there's that, you know, with Caleb and his mom, there's, it's a, and maybe I should let you ask your, your question there. Well, that this is where I, I go. This is so funny when you're, wa- I'm watching the show and there are things I just don't think about sure. like, Oh, that's Caleb's mother in, in the hospital. And then, Oh, Caleb's mother left him when he was a child. And I just didn't put the two together until last night after watching the episode for a third time, which made me, which makes me ask, is that really Caleb's mother in the beginning of the episode in the hospital? Did he really find her or is this someone thrusted into his life that Mm -hmm. he thinks is his mother? Right. It's a great question, and I could totally see. And I just woke up to it after watching the third time. You see how you would go there, and I think you know thematically, it's true that Hale and her son had a, had a rift. You know, and Hale, will, you know, when Hale is doing the video recording and crying and realizing she should have been there for her son, in some ways she kind of abandoned him. You know, she went to Westworld and she did her thing and she was doing it for him, but she wasn't always there for him. And Caleb's poor mom had mental issues, and she kind of abandoned him. Um, and he did ultimately, I believe, seek her out and find her. Okay, great. Her, yes, I believe that. Her, her not recognizing him, I think, speaks more towards who Caleb has become. The fact that she knew a certain person who had a certain history, who, you know, went to war, who was a military person, and all his memories of that have been changed. And so the person that sits before her is not the same person. I mean, she's, she's a little, you know, she has a little dementia. She's a little out of it. But I, I think there's a truth to when she says, you're not my son, because he has been altered. And that's what he comes to find out in the course of the season. The, um, the other question was, let's, let's talk about Dolores and her evolution, how she kind of went, and correct me if I'm wrong, something from a damsel in distress to a certain degree to being a revolutionary leader and ultimately um, a sacrificial lamb. I mean, she's just grown in power. Yes. Tell, Tell us about that. Was that always the outlook or did this just come to be, you know, when you, when you arrived in the season three room? Um, we talked a lot. So, so no, I think, I think this was the the plan all along that she would, um, start as this very naive rancher's daughter who, you know, was taken advantage of on so many levels, um, have an awakening and, um, want to free herself from that oppression and then free others. And then ultimately this season, um, come to realize that people are enslaved just as she has been and, and want to free them too. And we spoke about kind of the mirror of her um, journey with Dr. Ford in season one. And the fact that, you know, Anthony Hopkins, I mean, my God, he's so brilliant. But when you meet him, you really don't know, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Um, he's so mysterious. You know, he has a plan. You know, he is up to things, but you're not sure 
what exactly he's doing. And it's only as you kind of go through the course of the season that you start to realize that he's trying to awaken these hosts, that you start to realize he's actually trying to free these hosts. And so we talked a lot about kind of a bookend and a mirror um, with, with Dolores and that, and that she would kind of have a, a similar journey here and that we would see that journey in, in season three. And I think that it's, to me, it's very poignant because, you know, he was one of her creators um, and he taught her and she actually kind of supersedes him in the fact that she now is taking on the reins of helping humanity who have, who have so, you know, hurt her in the past. Is Ford still in the system or meaning, I, I said this in an interview with you guys once, no one really ever dies in Westworld. Right. Is he still... Is it possible he's still alive in the system? Um, I might play the fifth on that. <laughs> I mean, Understood. I, Understood. I, and I, and I get that. There's a beautiful quote, which is, you live as long as the last person who remembers you. And I do believe that a lot of people remember Dr. Ford. And then the other thing I wanted to ask about in the season finale, right, it's funny, you watch this again, you, This is what's great. You catch all these brilliant new things. So here I am watching the season finale, the epilogue, and I'm just all consumed of, oh no, robot men in black, man in black has killed human man in black. Oh no. (laughs) How does this connect to the epilogue of season two? Um, And yet he comes in. This is after Rehoboam's been destroyed Mm-hmm. You know, Dolores is is apparently um, apparently dead, and he comes in. and He's I'm here to save the world. It made me wonder, what is the agenda now of Man in Black or William, if you will, and what is the agenda of Charlotte now that Rehoboam has been taken care of and and is what I. Do, do we know, do we have any kind of setup of what their agenda is? Because you would think Charlotte has a little bit less agita on her mind now. But then it's, 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 it's Delos. And there's always complications. It is. It's Delos. It's always complicated. I find, um, I find her character so very fascinating. Uh, I think that, you know, having... It is funny that you mentioned those two together because I feel like in this season, you know, what we saw with MIB is um, him kind of stepping away, ultimately him stepping away from his humanity, right? You know, Lisa and Jonah kind of talked about that they had this idea from the beginning that they would slowly take Man in Black and walk him back to that point of Yul Brynner's character, that kind of iconic character in the original movie, that robot gunslinger. And you 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 see now he's on the threshold of that. He's one step closer uh, to that character. And we see, you know, that's kind of, that was his kind of overall journey was that he kind of you know, stepped away from his humanity. And yet you have Hale, um, who in the beginning of this season, you know, throughout most of the season was kind of embracing her humanity. She was, she was leaning towards her humanity. She was, you know, um, learning to care for this family. And it was only when um, this family was killed that she felt so vulnerable and that she lashed out and said, oh, you know what? People suck. You guys suck. I was right the first time around, right? Like, so I do think you have a feeling with her. I mean, she is a, she has always been, as Hale herself, she has always been a power to contend with. 
but now you see her in a whole new light. Um, and will she pick up a mantle of, um, you know, of host being supreme and making, making people subservient? Does she still have within her that little glimmer of, of humanity that she developed with her family? I think that's, that's part of the fun of seeing that next year, you know, um, part of the fun of going on the ride next year. The, um, before, before we go today, this, this series has become such a wonderful ode and, and poem to female empowerment. Mm. And um, if you could talk about that progression, because, mm. you know, when we first, when it started, we're thinking, okay, this is the TV series spinoff of the Michael Crichton film. And, you know, it, it's not going to be an exact, you know, well, who's playing the Yul Brenner character and, there was a great, there was, you know, probably one of the most profound um, twists in recent television uh, where there were two, where there were two timelines going on in season one. Still yeah. mind blowing to me. Yeah, for it's sure. Still so nuanced. I mean, yeah. I, for sure. Just, just really, and um, and and kudos to the fans out there that. Really, they spotted it like down and down to the props, you know, as far as the revelation goes. How did it come? It's great. You've got, you know, women working behind the camera and in in, in very key spots. It's become such a great talk about that. Talk about how how it, it came to be, if you can. Yeah, I mean, I think that is such a great question, such an important question. For me, the answer, um, is top down, quite frankly. You know, I think with Jonah and Lisa, you have people who are very, um, very progressive and who um, are very open-minded and who hire, you know, when you're talking about um, behind the camera and, and, you know, your editors and DPs and directors and writers, um, who hire, uh, who hire women, you know? Um, I think this, this room that I worked in was maybe the, the, the room in which I've, I've worked with the most women. Um, and I think that that translates into story and then, you know, and, and then on. And I've heard Lisa say that part of the reason that she was so interested in doing a Western is because you had these very iconic figures for women. You were a whore or you were the, you know, the rancher's daughter, you know, and that she wanted to add layers to that. And I think that you, and, and with Jonah as well, I think you see that. I think you see these really rich, um, interesting characters. And they're not just one thing or another. And I think that it actually, it elevates, you know, um, the genre for sure. And this year in particular, I found it very interesting that we had a, a setup where ultimately you felt there was going to be a showdown between Dolores and Maeve. You know, you have these two godlike warring women um, and you feel, and, and then, and then hail, you know, it's just kind of this like perfect triangle. Um, and you feel it coming and you're excited about it. And in fact, we did see um, Dolores and Maeve kick ass very, very many times with each other, but ultimately they come and have a meeting of the minds. And part of what is said in that meeting of the minds is they tried to separate us. You know, the, our creators tried to separate us and that's part of how they dominated us and controlled us. But now we are together and there's such very, very powerful forces. And so I think 
above and beyond, there's kind of a message of, you know, for us just in society to be supporting each other, to be supporting each other on, on all levels, supporting each other in storytelling, but also, you know, in front of and, and behind the camera all throughout. Also, the action. You've had these just fun, big screen action sequences. Um, quite often in, in comedy writing, I've heard that, you know, when you go for the gross out joke or, yeah. you mm -hmm. know, the big funny or the big curse word, mm -hmm. it's got to be earned. Right. Is that the same way with the action sequences? Like it, you would have, I mean, you just had these brilliant shootouts. I mean, it was, I mean, seriously, Jonah rivaled, you know, his brother's stuff in Dark Knight as far as what, you know, flipping, flipping trucks on a street, on a city street. Yeah. Tell yeah. me, tell me about the action scenes. Um, yeah. They just seem more visceral this, this season. That's very nice. Thank you. I mean, I think, um, I think we have an amazing, we have an amazing team of, you know, stunt coordinators and stuntmen all working together. I think, you know, there, there are also these kind of ideas behind the action that I think maybe help elevate it. The action itself is movie quality, is feature quality. And then you add to that, you know, Jonah had this idea in episode five, um, which is about genre and about this car chase. And so you have this car chase, but it feels very fresh and very different because you're having, you're experiencing these different genres as you go through it, you know? So I think that kind of thing can, can elevate the action, you know? Um, Maeve and Dolores kicking ass at the, in episode 308, you oh, know, yeah. really beautiful stunt work, you know, getting, get, you know, throwing each other and stuff like that. Um, so it is, it is kind of this battle royale between these women, but also the ideas kind of behind it going on in there, which is, you know, she, Dolores is made of now this exoskeleton, so she's kind of stronger. Um, why did they stop making, if you could make a stronger uh, host, why would you stop doing that? Well, because they, they were making them more in the likeness of people. And there's some metaphor there for, for how strong AI can be. And, you know, so I think there's those things that are kind of going on with the action that is thoughtful and, and thought provoking. And I think it does help elevate it. The action itself, don't get me wrong, I think is, is really incredible. But when you add the two together, it just is kind of dynamite. Was there, um, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's several film inspirations throughout the series, but that standoff in episode seven between them, um, what, were there any particular uh, touchstones when it came to movies? Um, that is a great question. I, don't, I do remember um, hearing Jonah talk a lot about uh, just Westerns in general, you know, and I think that was something that, that happened throughout the season that we spoke about, because even though we were going into this futuristic world, it was really important to keep the kind of the feeling of Westworld alive. And so we spoke about kind of that standoff, you know, that classic two gunslingers standing off against each other um, and waiting for something to happen and feeling the sun behind them and stuff like that. And so I think you feel that, I think maybe intuitively when you watch that, it's maybe not something that just hits you over the head, but that's something, you know, throughout the season we were talking about indefinitely in that fight, like, you know, we wanted to we wanted to feel that these were two gunslingers at any moment could um, could eviscerate each other. Denise Tay, I could talk Westworld with you for like the next six hours <laughs> straight, no no break. Uh, 
very fun. It I is so wonderful to have you on 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 dead on deadlines crew call, and thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. This is great. Nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.